I will bring God's word to us um, from the book of 2 Peter. But before we get there, um, I just want to say that um, one of the assignments that I have when I go, I think the only way I can sum up my assignment when I get back to Uganda is to use an analogy. I know Pastor John, Dr. MacArthur from Grace uh, Community, he, he loves that analogy when he's describing what it takes for you to make a faithful preacher. And, and he says, what you need to train your men to do is to know how to rock their office chairs. That's, that's my assignment as a professor. I am heading back to Uganda to help the preachers in Uganda know how to rock their office chairs. That's the only analogy I could think of that could sum up my assignment accurately. Pastor John says, when you get to your office as a preacher, you sit down on your office chair and you rock that chair forward. When you rock it forward, you do the science, you do the study. That's where you apply your hermeneutics. That's where you study and you think through the passage and dissect the passage. So we want to teach this man to rock their chairs forward. And then he says, after you do that, you need to rock it back. So swing back that office chair. And he says, once you do the science and you do the study, then you swing back to do the stewing. You stew on the passage. You meditate on it. We want them to thoroughly think about what they're preaching and the text and the passages that the Word of God presents to us. So that's my assignment. If someone asks you, what is uh, that Rutuna guy going to do in Uganda? He's going there to help men know how to rock their office chairs that they will be rocking forward and do the science, rocking backwards, and they will stew on the passage and really think it through. And when they stand before God's people and say, Thus saith the Lord, it will truly reflect what God has said in His Word. Second Peter chapter number 1. And we will only look at four verses this morning. Um, we are all familiar with one of the features of gold. Gold is a precious... Um, element, it's a precious metal, and one of the ways over the years that people have used to tell fake gold from genuine gold is they, they use the nitric acid test, because gold does not react with nitric acid, unlike other metals. And gold is a precious metal, and that's why I kind of like I chose that to be what will set the stage into us thinking about what the text is saying this morning because our faith is precious. And if one of the features of gold is it does not react with nitric acid and that's one way we can identify it and say this is a feature, a striking feature of gold, we want to think about our faith which is much more precious than gold and consider from what Peter says what are those unmistakable future, uh, features of our faith? Unmistakable features of the Christian faith. That's what we want to consider from this text. So 2 Peter chapter number 1, verse 1 through verse number 4. This is what God's Word says. It says, Simon Peter, a bond servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained like precious faith with us 
by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. As his divine power has given to us all things pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you will bring your word to bear upon our hearts and upon our minds. Your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Your word shines light on us and we can walk even as you have desired that we walk. And so my prayer today is that you will bring your word, speak to us, O oh Lord, and, and, and shape and fashion us in the likeness of your son that we will reflect, genuinely reflect, what true biblical faith is. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So just, just to give context and to give perspective to the text that we're going to look at this morning, um, Second Peter suggesting there's a fast. Peter, there's a fast episode, there's a fast ep epistle that he wrote, there's a fast letter that he wrote, and this is the second one. When he wrote his fast letter, he was addressing the issue of hostility. And, and we are reminded that as I think Elder Pat Hamblin prayed, that this is a very hostile world that we live in. We live in a world that hates what we believe. The world hates the Christ we profess. They hate the Savior that we love. And so hostility is nothing strange. We expect it. It is the norm. It's normative in the Christian circles. So we expect the world to be hostile towards us because it's a dark and fallen and depraved world. So Peter, he writes to uh, um, those Jews that were scattered abroad, and he writes to them hoping to help them cope and deal with the hostility and be victorious in their Christian living. In the second letter that he writes, he addresses a different issue. He addresses false teachers. So you will notice that as a church, we are not just dealing with threats from outside, we are dealing from, uh, with threats from inside as well. So in the first letter, he addresses the threats that are external, external threats. In this second letter, he is going to address internal threats, threats that come from within, from the false teachers who are propagating a gospel that is not the gospel, and that is what he seeks to address. What we see him do in the first four verses of chapter 1 is he gives to us some distinct features, and it is very helpful for us as God's children if we are familiar with how our faith should look like, so that any time, any contrary 
thing is presented to us, we are able to detect it and reject it. We will detect and reject anything that is not true biblical faith. And that's what he does to help his audience, that they will be able to detect and reject anything that is not true biblical faith. And so in these four verses, he presents to us three unmistakable features of our faith, our biblical faith. Please consider with me these three features, because it's helpful that as we, as we live for Christ, as we do church, as we congregate together, we are familiar with these features. And we can, anytime something different other than that is presented to us, we will pick it so quick and we will throw it out and say, no, that does not reflect true biblical faith. So what's, what's the feature number one that he presents to us? If you have your notes, uh, the blanks on your notes, the first uh, two blanks that you have there will be filled with these two words. Striking overlap. He presents to us a striking overlap. And that's what we get from reading verse one and verse number two. It says here, Simon Peter a bond servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained, pay attention to these key words. He says, to those who have obtained like precious faith, like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Take note of those key words that I've just you know, repeated. He says, he's, he's, he addresses his audience, and he says, I am Simon Peter, a bond servant and a, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and he's saying, I am addressing you who have obtained like precious faith. He says, your faith and my faith, identical, similar. He's saying there's a striking overlap between the faith I have and the faith you have. He is saying, even though I walked with Jesus for three years, I was at the Mount of Transfiguration. He will talk about that later in, 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 in his letter. He says, even though I am that guy who Jesus spoke to and he said, uh, you know, um, Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven, even though Jesus gave all these commendations about Peter, Peter says the faith that he has and the faith that you have and the faith that his audience has, similar. He does not possess anything superior or, or of higher quality than what the average saint has. Please pay attention to that. It's a striking overlap. And he says, the faith I have is similar to the one you have. There are no degrees. There are no distinctions. It is one monolithic gift from God to all. No one receives one that is of a higher quality than the other. He says it's similar because, number one, of its foreignness. The faith that we have, the faith that we have is similar because all of us, the salvation that God has given us, 
The redemption we have in Christ is a foreign redemption. Why am I saying that? Because of what Peter says here. He says, to those who have obtained, that's a key word. You have obtained it. You did not attain it. You know what it means to attain? It means that you labored and worked for it. But Peter says the faith that you have, the faith that we have, is something we have obtained, not attained it. We did not attain this faith. We obtained it. Meaning, it is offered and given. It is not worked for. So the faith we have has, has been offered and given to us from an external source. It is not something that you can boast about that you worked for or you merited inherently. No. He says it's foreign. We have obtained it. And how did we obtain it? He says we have obtained it by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That the faith we have, the salvation we boast about, the redemption that we enjoy has been made available because of the righteousness of Jesus. You and I, we have, the only thing that we can say is native to us. What, what is native to you? There is no human being ever born since God created Adam and Eve. Even Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden did not have a native righteousness. They were innocent, they had not sinned, they had not rebelled at the point of creation, but even the innocence they had was given to them by God. There is no human being that can boast that they have a native righteousness. The only person that can boast of having a native righteousness is Christ. And that is what it takes to redeem your soul. For you to stand before God, God demands righteousness. And so you must import righteousness. Righteousness must be imported to you because you do not have it natively. What is native to you is nothing but filth and vileness. That is the only thing we can boast that we, we possess natively as human beings that we possess vileness, we possess corruption. That's what is in our DNA as the human race. But when we look to Christ, what do we see? We see a righteousness that is native to him. He does not need to import that righteousness from anywhere. He has native righteousness. And that's what you need, that's what I need to stand before a holy God. And Peter is very careful to help his audience remember that. He says, we have a faith, we have a salvation, we have a redemption that is, that is similar. Consider that striking overlap. And why is it similar? It is similar because it is foreign. None of us can claim it was native to them. We have all obtained it. We have received it from an external source. Never, ever forget that. That you have nothing native in you to boast about. What you can boast about that is native to you is vileness and corruption. 
That's the only thing any children and the sons of Adam can boast about. Vileness and corruption. But Christ, Christ has a righteousness that is native to him. That is why the songs that go on in heaven must reflect that. Think about the songs that go on in heaven. The Bible speaks about the worship in Isaiah 6 and even the worship in Revelation 4 and Revelation 5. We hear a confession that reflects the nativity of God's righteousness. That is a song in heaven that says, holy, 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 the thrice holy God. I mean, if it's repeated three times, there's an emphasis there. If it's repeated three times, he wants to communicate. It's in the superlative. This is holiness beyond measure. And that's the holiness that Jesus possesses. And that's the holiness that is demanded for your soul's redemption. And you don't have it. It must be an importation. And Peter makes that clear. He says we have obtained this like precious faith by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So why, why is this faith, um, where, what, what, what makes us say there's a striking overlap being communicated here? It's simple, because we see this faith is characterized by foreignness. So the other thing that is similar my friends, the other thing that is similar is, is, is not just the foreignness associated with this faith. All of us can say, we have a faith that we received. It's not of our own. God gave it to us. So we are clear on the foreignness of this faith. But I also want you to see Peter is communicating the fullness of this faith. And, and these are the things that we rejoice over. These are the things that our souls cannot help but bubble with joy over. If you consider verse number two, you will see the fullness that Peter is hoping his audience will walk away with. This is what he says. He says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, grace and peace, uh, so much has been said. I mean, I don't mean to be redundant, but we know this is a very common first century greeting that also would communicate the fact that, you know, as far as God's redemptive plan, God had a plan to redeem both the Jews and the Greeks. We know, we know that the Jews, a common greeting for them was, was shalom, peace. That's what they would say, you know. Instead of hi and hello, they would say shalom, peace. So that was a common Hebrew greeting. But uh, charis, you know, grace was a common Greek greeting. So, so, yeah, quite clearly we can see that even when the apostles are writing their letters and they're using this kind of greeting, they're saying, yes, God's redemptive agenda was to redeem Jews and Greeks. And, and that's fine. But, but we also see... In, in the greeting that Peter gives here, that he communicates an idea of a fullness that I don't want us to miss. You see the word translated, be multiplied to you, that word translated, be multiplied to you, he's saying, may you have it to the fullest measure. 
Have grace and peace to the fullest measure. And he's saying this is something available to all saints, not to a special breed of saints. It's available to all saints, grace and peace to the fullest measure. That's a striking overlap. This grace and peace is not a reserve of some special saints. It's available to all of God's children. So see that fullness. Think of the foreignness and think of the fullness and say this is an overlap that makes our faith similar. Receive this grace, receive this peace to the fullest degree. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this same word is used when in Genesis, Moses is writing about the flood. And he says, the Lord flooded the earth. It's the same word. So what Peter is saying is that there's grace and peace available so full it will flood your life. You know, grace speaks of God's favor. And when Adam fell, and all of us who are descendants of Adam, we fell out of favor with God. We fell out of favor. But Peter is saying, listen, even though you fell out of favor, because of the righteousness of Christ, favor has been restored. And it is available to the fullest degree. And he's saying that is for all the saints, not just a special breed of saints. That's for all of us. The favor has been restored to the nth degree. And peace has been restored to the nth degree. See the fullness of this faith. Be multiplied to you. Flood your life. Flood your soul. The grace and the peace of God. I love thinking about things like that. When I, when I reflect about the, the majesty and the greatness of our redemption. That we are... The, fa the, 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 the favor is restored and is available in full. Peace is restored. I think about peace. Listen, the Bible talks about the peace that we have as saints. And it's important that we remind each other about these things. The peace that we have as saints. The Bible speaks about the, the quantity and the quality of the peace that we have as God's children. This peace that God has made available in, to, to the full. This peace speaks about, God speaks about it in, in Isaiah 26 and verse 3. And he says, perfect peace. That's the quality of this peace. It is perfect peace. Perfect peace have they whose mind is steadfast. The minds that are stayed on God, they have perfect peace. In the midst of the chaos and the confusion that characterizes our world today, God's children are flooded by perfect peace. Peace that we know the pharmaceutical industry cannot afford you. They can offer you all the kind of narcotics you think about, but those things will not do it for you. This is peace available to those who have this faith. And then in Psalm 119, verse 165, the psalmist says, Great peace have they who love your law. 
So we have, we have the quantity of peace and the quality of peace. And, and, and from what Peter is saying, listen, this is what God offers to the full for you and I who are God's children. So he says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ. My brothers and sisters, please be reminded of this striking overlap. When you think about what overlaps, what is the common denominator between you and I and all the saints of all the ages, it's the foreignness and the fullness that this faith offers to us. The salvation we have is a foreign salvation. The salvation we have is a full salvation. It offers grace and it offers peace to the fullest degree. So please consider that a striking overlap. And I'm saying this to you in your notes. I urge you, please don't walk away from verse number one and verse number two before you consider these two additional observations. I'm saying to us, if you look at your Bible, you will notice there's two combinations. There's two combinations in verse number one and verse number two. I don't want you to walk away from this chapter without considering this. Number one, it's the way the author of this letter the way he identifies himself. Peter identifies himself with his two names. He says, Simon Peter, a born servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. He, he calls himself by his two names, and, and he seeks to communicate and remind his audience of, I'm saying this is the before and after picture of salvation that he wants to communicate. I know people take before and after pictures. Maybe before you start the diet, you take a picture. And after the diet, a picture to, sh to sh kind of show what, what happened, the results. This is, this is Peter's before and after picture. When he just mentions his two names, he's saying, I want you to hear my story before and after Jesus saved me. It's Jesus who gave him his second name, Peter. He says, yes, yes, Simon Bar-Jonah, that's the name your father gave you, Simon the son of Jonah, but I call you Peter. And then he made that, you know, immoral statement. Upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So that, that communicates the before and after. I, I think Peter does that intentionally because one of the problems that was uh, springing in that church is, is an antinomian teaching. The Libertines were teaching that as, as Christians, we don't need to pay attention to obedience anymore. The law means nothing to us. And Peter says, no. If there's no striking difference between your life before and your life now, you are not in the faith. And so even through his name, he's communicating the before and after reality of salvation. And then he says, the other combination I want you to notice is, is how he identifies himself next. He says, I am, a, I am a, a slave and an apostle. I am a slave and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, you will notice all the saints in Scripture, all the saints that we revere and we hold highly, we esteem highly, they wear the badge of servanthood with a lot of pride. 
That, that's what we are aiming for. That's what we are shooting for, being servants of Jesus Christ. I don't know what your aspirations are, but you can clearly see Peter is wearing this as a badge of honor. It's a badge of honor. And that's what we as God's children are shooting for. People in the corporate world, they have ambitions, they, they have goals, they have objectives, but for us, our goal is to serve Christ. And we wear the servant badge with honor. And I, one of the things that thrills me about PBC, and I'm just hoping that we'll be able to replicate that in, in the village that, that, that we're headed to, is I see a lot of servants here. And they wear that badge with honor, without apology. They wear the badge of servanthood. They want to serve. That's their goal. And that has always been the goal of these saints. That was Peter's goal, and he wears that badge with honor. I mean, I think I said one of the things he seeks to communicate there is that relationship comes before role. He says, I'm a slave before I'm an apostle. You cannot serve Christ if he is not the Lord of your life. You cannot serve Jesus if you do not have a relationship with him. We are saying the relationship comes before the role. And Peter is careful in the way he, he, he arranges his words. He wants to be identified as a slave, as a servant first, before he can be identified as an apostle. He says, this is what I am, and this is what I do. What am I? I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. I'm a servant of Christ. And what do I do? I'm, I'm an apostle. He sent me. He's given me a mandate to reach the Jews with the gospel. So don't get those two mixed up. Because we see so many churches are filled with so many people who want to, to have a role before they have a relationship. And Peter is saying it doesn't work like that. You have it flipped. You have it mixed up. The relationship comes first and then the role. I am a servant. I am a slave first before I am an apostle. So please pay attention to that. Because of time, we will just say that, that, that we have two combinations, Simon Peter communicating the reality of before and after salvation, and we have the second one, a slave and an apostle, and that communicates the fact that we need to have a relationship before we can play the role. So we see that as one unmistakable, one unmistakable feature of genuine biblical saving faith. It's a faith that is marked by a striking overlap. We know it's foreignness, and we know it's fullness. The second thing that Peter says is you need to pay attention to this. This is another striking. It's, it's an unmistakable feature of genuine saving faith. It is, the, it, it, it is marked by a sufficient operation. A sufficient operation. Where do we get that? We get that from verse number 3. In verse number 3, the Bible says, after he says, let me just read from verse number 2 and jump into 3 because it's one continuous sentence. He says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of, our, of Jesus our Lord as His divine power has given to us all things pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue. 
Now, it's quite clear that the second unmistakable feature of our faith that Peter is communicating to us, he's saying there's a striking overlap, yes, but there's also a sufficient operation. He's saying the power, the divine power of God has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He's saying God has done an operation. God has done a work that is sufficient. We do not need to add to it. We do not need to modify it. We do not need to improve on it. He is saying the work that was done, our faith, is marked by an operation that is sufficient. You cannot add to it. You cannot improve it. You cannot modify it. It is sufficient because his power has made available to us all things pertaining to life and godliness. Now, we know how this verse, especially this verse, we know how it has been massacred by um, prosperity gospel preachers, the health and wealth gospel preachers. They will take this verse and they will say, you see it? He has because of the sacrifice of Christ, you have all things for life and godliness. Now, I think one of the things that was said during the biblical counseling conference is that you can say the right thing, but use the wrong text to say it. And you shouldn't do that. Well, God as a father, today is Father's Day. And as, 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 as you know, we celebrate Father's Day, we celebrate the supreme father, and that's God, and he takes care of his children. And that's okay. I mean, God watches out for us, and He provides for us physical and material needs as, he's, as He deems fit. That's okay. But, but what is being spoken about here has nothing to do with physical and material provision. Because it says here, His divine power has given to us all things, all things pertaining to life and godliness. The word translated life there, I remember Pastor Adam when we were going through um, the book of John before we jumped into Acts. I remember him mentioning the three Greek words that are translated life. And he talked about bios, which is the biological life. And then he talked about suke, and he talked about zoe. And zoe is eternal life. And this verse, the word translated life here, is the word zoe. And this is, it's saying here that God's divine power has given to us all things pertaining to eternal life and godliness. So his power has made eternal life available to us. And there's nothing that is left undone. Nothing that is left to be added or to modify. As far as our faith is concerned, our faith is marked by a striking overlap, but it is also marked by a sufficient operation. Because it says here, His power has given to us all things pertaining to life and godliness. So please see it. What heaven executes is a plan that will not require external help. So our faith is marked by an operation that heaven did, and that operation is sufficient. It does not require external help. It is all done and complete. 
because it is sufficient, you cannot add to it. It is sufficient because of all the agents and the components that bring our salvation about. What are those agents? I, I am saying to us, listen, if you read Romans chapter 5 and verse 18, Romans 5, 18 will, will remind you that our Savior is sufficient. It says, through one man, Jesus Christ, many have been justified. So our Savior is sufficient. Jesus' obedience is all that God required to save you and to save me. And because of the obedience of Christ, the operation is sufficient. Our Savior is sufficient, yes, but also you need to consider that the Scriptures are sufficient. From Genesis all the way to Revelation, the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and verse 17, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for teaching and rebuking and, and instructing in righteousness. The Scriptures are sufficient. You and I have not been invited to add anything to this faith. Not only is our Savior sufficient, not only are the Scriptures sufficient, but His sacrifice is sufficient too. Hebrews 10 and verse 11 and 12 will tell you that that in the old system, in the mosaic system, they used to offer sacrifices. They would kill bulls and they would kill goats and they would offer doves and they would offer blood sacrifice. But the Bible says the priest would offer that sacrifice day after day after day after day. But when Jesus offered his sacrifice, the Bible says he sat at the right hand of glory. So the sacrifice that Jesus offered is sufficient. And you are saved because our Savior is sufficient, the Scriptures are sufficient, and His sacrifice is sufficient. That is what makes this operation a su sufficient operation. It is done. That is why Jesus on the cross, He cries out and He says, Tetelestai, it is finished, paid in full. The sufficiency of this operation is not in doubt. It is not in question. We have confidence, even as uh, Brother Crawford was saying, we have confidence because when heaven executed this operation, all the bases were covered and nothing was left to chance. And it is a sufficient operation. See it that the divine power of God has given to us all things pertaining to eternal life and godliness. And we will talk about godliness uh, tonight during Summerfest. Eternal life has been made available by the power of God. But then godliness, our sanctification, is also covered. So all the bases are covered. It's a sufficient operation. You know, I agree with Alistair Begg. Alistair Begg said the other day, he said, our faith, our salvation cannot be described using the first person pronouns. The first person pronouns would be things like I, me, mine. You know, those are first person pronouns. You can never ever describe your salvation using the first person pronouns. 
I remember back in the days we used to walk out. Uh, I, I remember the evangelism explosion training, and they would say, you know, when you go out there, pose that question to people. If you found yourself in the past, you know, before in front of heaven's gates, and the, the angel asked you, why should I let you into God's heaven? What would you say? And they said the, 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 the right answer is you would say, I put my faith in Christ, and that's why you should let me in. And Alistair Begg says, wrong answer. Because that answer is in the first person. You say, I did this and did that. Your faith cannot be explained using first person pronouns. Your faith can only be explained using third person pronouns. You stand in front of those gates and the answer you should give is because he, he, Jesus, because he paid the price and pulled me out from the mire of sin. That we can only use third person pronouns to explain our faith. This is a sufficient operation. And when heaven split open and the Son of God descended down on earth and he offered his sacrifice, it was a sufficient sacrifice. And the only reason we will make it there is because he split the heavens, came down, sought us out, picked us out from the mire of sin and saved us. It's not because I believed him. It's true that I believe him, but that's the wrong answer. It's because of him, not I. And so it's a sufficient operation because of the sufficient sacrifice. The other unmistakable feature of genuine faith, yeah, we consider the striking overlap. We have considered the sufficient operation. Please consider with me the sanctified ontology. The sanctified ontology. We are talking about, when you talk about ontology, you're talking about nature. And we are saying there's a sanctified nature that is a, an unmistakable feature of our faith. In verse number 4, the Bible says, By which he has given to us great and exceeding promises, that through this you may be partakers of the divine nature. The divine nature, because of his promises, you may be partakers of his divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. There's a divine nature that we boast about as God's children. And that is what we are calling a sanctified ontology. You have a sanctified nature. You have a purified nature. That is an unmistakable feature of our faith. That we have a new nature. The Bible says that in the Old Testament. The Bible says that in the New Testament. That about the new covenant, we will become new creation. We are a new creation. We have a sanctified ontology. We have a sanctified nature. We have a purified nature. We are a distinct breed. I remember saying that so many times in Kenya. We, we have, I mean, there's, there's issues with every country. One of the things that we struggle with in Kenya is, is tri tribal issues, tribalism. And tribalism is, is you know, Different tribes being hostile to each other. And I used to say this, I said, we have 47 tribes in Kenya, but I want to differ with those statistics. We have 48 tribes in Kenya. And the 48th tribe is really believers. Because we have 
a nature that is different from all else. We have a sanctified ontology. And I'm saying there are things that your nature will determine. Please allow me to submit this to us as I finish. Your nature will determine these three things. I'm saying the first thing that your nature will determine is your nature will determine your appetite. Okay? If you were born a bird, like you fly, you know, the birds of the air, you, you, you will have a craving for worms. It, it, would be, it would be abnormal for you as a human being to crave for worms. Birds crave for that because their nature feeds off of it. Now, because of the nature we have, because of the new creation we have become, we have a new appetite. And the Bible says in 1 Peter, you can write that down and read it at your own time, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 2, it says that as newborn babes, we crave for the pure milk of the Word. We, we have an innate hunger. We, we, we have an inborn desire for Scripture. We, we have a hunger because we know that's what our new nature feeds upon. So your nature will determine your appetite, what you crave for. It would be very abnormal if you claim to be a Christian and you have no desire for the Scriptures. It would be an abnormality. Now, one of the things that should happen to you is you should have a desire, a craving for God's Word. Because your nature demands it. Your nature demands that you have an appetite for holy things because it says here, His promises have given to us, has made us partakers of the divine nature. So we have a new appetite and we have, the second thing is your, your nature will determine your associations. It will determine your associations. That's why birds will fly with birds. Dogs will hang around dogs. Cows will hang around cows. Lions will hang around lions. It's, they're na naturally, they're lions. So they hang around those that are of their kind. Why do you think we are gathered here this morning? It's because of our nature. We, we associate with those who look like us. And because of your faith, and the faith that we share, we naturally just gravitate towards one another. That's what the Bible says. I, I, I wish that you would have time to read Psalm 119 and verse 63. Psalm 119, 63, it, it, it says that the company you keep is the company of those who love the law of the Lord. That's the company we keep. That's why, that's why we come. That's why we gather is because we have a similar nature. So the association is because we gravitate towards, you, you are of my species, spiritually speaking. We are of the same species. We gravitate towards one another. So your nature will determine your appetite, your nature will determine your association, and your nature will determine your aspirations, lastly. Your aspirations. Second Corinthians chapter number 5 and verse 9. The Bible says that we have made it our aim to be pleasing to Him. 
Because of the new nature that we have in Christ, our goal, our aim is to please Him. So our aspiration, our ambition is to please Christ. That's what we live for. That's what we will die for because of the sanctified ontology that we have in Him. So remember, brothers and sisters, that there are unmistakable features of our faith. Think about the striking overlap. Think about the sufficient operation. And think about the sanctified ontology. And you say, these are things that unmistakably will identify biblical faith. Unmistakably, this is what Christian salvation looks like. And Peter is saying to his audience, please do not miss that. This will help you when, when, when false preachers begin to creep up in your church, you can identify what is true biblical faith and what is not. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what Peter said centuries ago. We thank you because it is relevant to us to this day. We will be reminded of how foreign this faith is will be reminded of its fullness, that it's full. It's not given sparingly. There's a fullness to it. It's full measure in the grace and the peace that you supply. And also that you did something that does not require any improvements. When you died on that cross, you got the job done. And so we can boast of a sufficient operation, and we can boast of a new nature, so I pray that you will help us live that out, that it will be clear to all that we have a nature that is divine, a nature that is out to please the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.